We are actually in our seventh week of a series that we're calling Worship and the Psalms. Worship and the Psalms. Uh, every year I go away for about a week and I, do, I read a book and I do sermon planning. And uh, this last year I went away and um, I found a, an album by a group called Shane and Shane where they took um, various psalms and they put them to music. And I thought, well, that'd be a really fun sermon series to take each of the, the psalms that they rewrote into music use that as the opening illustration, and then preach on the psalm. And so that's what we're doing. So we are in week seven today of that series. Next week will be the last um, of that series. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 45, and uh, we're going to begin with their version, Shane and Shane's version of that psalm. But before we do, let me take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for calling us together to be a church. I thank you, Father, for supernaturally bringing uh, the people that are here, that, that make up Seven Hills Fellowship, that you called us together. And uh, Father, I thank you that you've been at work within us and through us in this community. And Father, I pray that you would continue to be at work within us uh, and through us so that your, uh, this city of Rome and this church and these families might flourish as we surrender our hearts and our minds and our actions to you. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can tell that what the musical artist that reframed that song, what they did is they went ahead and turned it into a sermon. They took into account not only the historical meaning of that uh, psalm, but also uh, the future implication of it. We'll get into that in just a few moments. Um, let me do this. Let's go ahead and jump into actually reading Psalm 45, the psalm that that was based upon. And so it'll be up on the screen, and I'll read it um, from beginning to end. Psalm 45, for the director of music to the tune of Lilies. Of the sons of Korah, a mascal, a wedding song. Verse 1 My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her, led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The question is, what should we this morning, sitting here on Father's Day 2022, what should we take away? What should we see in Psalm 45? Well, in order to do that, the first thing we need to do is we need to understand the context of the psalm. That is the literature, the author, and the particular historical moment at which it was written. 
It's important when reading Scripture to always ask that question, what's the context of this letter? What's the context of this verse? What kind of literature is this? Is it historical? Is it wisdom literature? Is it didactic literature? Is this letter a letter that's written to a particular church or a particular region at a particular moment? In this case, what we know about Psalm 45 is its poetry or its poetic literature. In fact, usually the poetic and wisdom books are lumped together as Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Those are all kind of joined together typically. And so what we know about Psalm 45 is that it's poetry and should be interpreted in light of that. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to understand about the context of Psalm 45 is that there are some other clues we see. The title gives us some more information. We read there, for the director of music to the tune of lilies of the sons of Korah, a mascal, a wedding song. So that roots it, it gives us some idea. It was intended to be a wedding song and it was written by the sons of Korah. We read about them or the Korahites all the way back to the time of Moses. So they were around for quite some time. And by the time that David is king, they've become uh, this group who plays a prominent role in his administration. And one of the places that we see these uh, sons of Korah being involved is in writing songs for worship. In fact, 11 of the Psalms are written by the sons of Korah, including Psalm 46, which Jeff preached on last week. So Psalm 45 is poetic literature. It's written by the sons of Korah. And as the title makes clear, it's a wedding song. So immediately, I don't know about you, but I want to know, well, whose wedding is this for? That would kind of matter to me. That'd be interesting. And so uh, verse one seems to indicate that it was written for a king. Scholars have debated which king it was written for. They've debated whether or not it was written for David or whether or not it was written for Solomon. Some scholars have even argued that it was written for Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, if you guys remember that story from 1 Kings. The speculation around Ahab is because of verse 8, which refers to palaces adorned with ivory. I don't know if you remember that from what I just read a minute ago, because in 1 Kings 22, we read of Ahab having an ivory house or an ivory palace. And so could have been one of those kings. We don't know exactly who this psalm was written for initially, but what we do know very, very clearly is that neither David nor Solomon nor Ahab came anywhere close to measuring up to the qualities described to this king in Psalm 45, not by a mile. Was David a paragon of truth, humility, and justice as verse 4 identified this king? Was he that person when he had an affair with Bathsheba? Was he a paragon of truth, humility, and justice when he tried to cover it up and had her husband killed? Or was he a paragon of truth, humility, and justice when his son, had uh, Amnon, had, um, took advantage of a woman sexually? Was he uh, that paragon of truth and humility and justice when he refused uh, to punish his own son and hold him accountable? Did Solomon love righteousness and hate wickedness, as verse 7 indicates, when he married many, many foreign wives and ended up worshiping their foreign gods? What about Ahab? I think many of us know his story. Verse 6 says that this king would carry a scepter of justice. When Ahab turned a blind eye to Jezebel's idolatry and even joined her in worship when he built a temple for Baal and he set up an Asherah pole, right? Was he somebody who was carrying a scepter of justice? How about when Ahab murdered Naboth so he could take possession of his vineyard? 
what we see very clearly is that every king of Israel, even the best, fell far, far short of this man that we read about in verses 1 through 10. Now, let me pause here for just a second and acknowledge that that's true of us as well. As a pastor, I have the privilege of walking through many young many young couples through premarital counseling, through pre-wedding events, and then through the wedding ceremony itself. One of the things that I'm certain of is that no bride or groom stands up at the front of the church, in front of their parents, in front of the family, in front of their friends, and thinks to themselves, one day I'm going to lose my temper and yell at my spouse, right? Nobody thinks that's going to be them. Nobody thinks one day after being married for a few years, I'm going to look at pornography, Nobody thinks that. I feel confident that all of those brides and all of those grooms have the best of intentions of being faithful and true and righteous and loving, but I also know after 27 years of my own marriage and 30 plus years of ministry that everyone, everyone, men and women alike, are polluted by sin, and we fall far, far short of the people that we desire to be and the people that God desires us to be. Like Paul, we do what we don't want to do, and we don't do what we do want to do. Paul goes on to say in Romans 7 this, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am." Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus, we struggling sinners and saints are not only forgiven, Romans 8.1, as Jeff read this morning, makes it very clear that there's no condemnation for those people who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. Not only is that true that we're forgiven because of Jesus, but we're also given the Holy Spirit because of Jesus who dwells in us and enables us to live new lives, gives us new desires, and who slowly but surely mortifies the sin that pollutes us and harms the people that we love. So for you who are painfully aware of just how you've fallen short of being the bride or the groom that you want to be, you need to hear this morning that there is forgiveness and there is hope. Psalm 45 is a reminder of that. So is the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in just a moment. It's a reminder that forgiveness and hope are ours precisely because Psalm 45 points us to Jesus, as Catherine commented this morning. Ultimately, that's who this psalm is about. Let's look very quickly at, and see how this groom is really talking about Jesus. Look at verses 1 through 7. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever." A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, some of you may be asking, well, how does Psalm 45 point to Jesus? And there are actually a couple of different answers to that question. The first is that Jesus in Luke chapter 24 says this. 
He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus understood that the Old Testament was actually pointing to him. He makes it clear that all those Old Testament promises find their fulfillment in him. And so this king we read about in Psalm 45 points us directly to Jesus. This would explain why in verse 6, we read, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And it makes sense that the psalmist would then write that this groom is the most excellent of men, as verse 2 states. Jesus, our great high priest, was tempted in every way that we are, and yet unlike us, he was without sin. He literally was and literally is the most excellent of men. We also know in Psalm 45 that it points to Jesus because the author of Hebrews says so. That's again the passage that Catherine read earlier this morning. And in Hebrews, the author's driving home the point that Jesus was divine, that he was God. Obviously, we read that in Psalm 45. We read that he was superior to angels, and we read that he was superior to Moses, and that as a result, the author of Hebrews makes the point that he should be honored and that he should be worshiped. Hebrews 1, 6 through 9 quotes Psalm 45 when it says this, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, here's the quote of Psalm 45, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45 and Hebrews 1 both shed light upon the person of Jesus. He deserves worship not only from angelic beings, but he deserves worship from you and from me as well. Jesus wears a sword because he fights for truth, for humility. He fights for justice. Jesus loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. He uses his divine power to place our enemies, sin, and death under his feet. And from Jesus' lips come words of grace. Jesus is not only a good king, he is the good king. He is the good king who all of our human hearts truly long for. When I read this section of Psalm 45, I'm immediately uh, reminded of that scene, scene from The Return of the King where Aragorn has conquered um, Sauron and crushed the enemies, and he's chased them all away, and he's coronated, if you guys remember, on this mountaintop overlooking Minas Tirith. And when they place the crown on his head, what everyone realizes is that because a good king is now on the throne, there will be peace and flourishing in the land for all good people. That's also what it means when the good King Jesus sits upon the throne of your heart and my heart. As we surrender to his desire for truth, we're set free from the deception, the dishonesty, the du duplicitous that plagues each and every one of us. As we surrender to his desire for justice, we commit our lives to what is good and right, not only for us, not only for our families, not only for our tribes, but we commit ourselves to what is good and right for everyone. And when we surrender our hearts to his grace, we're set free, not only from self-loathing, but also from the drive and the energy of self-salvation, our good king 
brings good news. Now, we're not quite done with Psalm 45 yet. The sons of Korah don't just focus on the groom. They turn their attention to the bride as well. Look look at verses 10 through 17, and we'll see that the bride is ultimately us. Verses 10 through 17, listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. Those brought to be with her, led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. So ironically, in context, when the sons of Korah were writing this psalm for a particular wedding, they may have been writing about Jezebel, right? A less than honorable woman. Or they may have been written about one of the wives that Solomon took that ultimately led Israel into idolatry. Interpreting this poem as a messianic psalm, however, means that we are ultimately the bride that this psalm speaks of. These verses ultimately point to us. In the light of the goodness of our bridegroom, we are invited to commit ourselves fully to him. Why would we not? We're encouraged to make ourselves beautiful to him. Why would we not? We're exhorted to honor Jesus because he is the Lord. Why would we not do that? But the lion's share of these eight verses aren't about what we can do for Jesus, but rather they're ultimately about what has been done for us. Look at verse 12. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. The people of wealth will seek your favor. Being the bride of Christ means that one day we will sit in positions of power and influence so much so that we'll be honored, we'll be pursued, we'll be celebrated. This happened to Joseph in the Old Testament. It happened to Daniel in the Old Testament. It happened to Deborah. People will see that we are different. There'll be a quality of our lives and people will be drawn to us. I recently watched uh, an interview with Tim Keller and several other people on a panel, and uh, the moderator asked the question, what are we going to do in this world? It's falling apart. You know, there's all, and the commentator quoted all these things about, you know, abortion and divorce and children out of wedlock, along with all these other cultural ills that manifest themselves across society. And he was lamenting that, and he was saying, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And Tim Keller said, well, first of all, the church has always been a minority throughout history. The church has always existed in cultures that are massively unfriendly to it. And in this particular moment, what's happening is that secular sociologists and philosophers and psychologists are actually engaging in some of the culture wars. And Keller said, I think the best thing that we can do as Christians is that husbands can love their wives well. And wives can love their husbands well. And we can raise our families together. And what Keller said is, he said, I think what will happen is that eventually the rest of the world will look at these Christian families and these Christian churches and realize that they're a counterculture for the common good and people will be drawn to the truth of Christianity much more because of who we are. Now, there's more to this section on the church. Look at verses 13 through 15. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. Those brought to be with her, led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Being the bride of Christ uh, not only means that people will be drawn to us, but it also means that God will make us glorious, that God will make us glorious. Think about Psalm 8. 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. As human beings, we were created for glory and honor. We've fallen from that because of sin. So maybe it would be more accurate to say that we will be restored by God to that glory that we were created for to begin with. I love thinking about that idea. In the new heavens and the new earth, there are people who will have been plagued with anxiety and depression, and those very same people instead will be calm and confident, and they will be at peace when they are restored. They'll be who God created them to be. People who have been ravaged with cancer or with old age will be made completely whole in the new heavens and the new earth. They'll be restored to the glory God created them for. Jesus will use his power to restore each of us to what we were originally created to be. I love that. Being the bride of Christ means that we will be made beautiful. This is, of course, a reminder again that the gospel tells us very clearly that God doesn't love us because we are beautiful. He makes us beautiful because He loves us. To be fair, let's be honest about this, not everyone loves weddings, right? Again, this is a wedding psalm. Weddings can be stuffy, they can be very long, they can be very formal, there's all these things. A buddy of mine uh, who is actually a New Testament professor at a Christian college told me that he was at a wedding several years ago and that the uh, officiant or the pastor up front waxed a little bit long and a little bit eloquent and he said he was sitting there and some guy got up in the back of the sanctuary and stood up and said, come on already, get it over with. The problem is 50% of us in this room have thought that before at weddings. We just haven't said it. While not everyone loves the actual ceremony, maybe some people do, I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't love the food that's served at the reception after the wedding. I was at a wedding recently, I did a wedding, and at the reception afterwards, there was steak and there was lobster and there was decadent wedding cake. It was pretty amazing. And wedding receptions, like the wedding itself, should be a celebration And similarly, Jesus left us with a celebration as well. We call it the Lord's Supper. It looks back and celebrates the Passover, where ultimately God rescued the children of Israel out of their slavery and set them free. The Lord's Supper also looks forward and celebrates the wedding supper of the Lamb that we read in Revelation, where we get to sit around the family table of God And we get to be in the presence of our groom, Jesus, who makes us whole, where we will finally be at rest.